Radio Mano Papachango. Chris, I've uh, been listening to your podcast for the better part of a year now, um, almost listened to every single one of your episodes, and the last one really resonated with me, with uh, Michael Venicianu. Um, you talked about forgiveness and self-love, and that's been just a huge part of my journey, forgiving my absent father and my mother who screwed me up, uh, doing the best that she can and forgiving myself for how I've re-traumatized myself uh, throughout uh, my life. And it, let me tell you, forgiveness has done wonders for me. Uh, it's got me to the place where I can truly love myself and allow others to love me. Um, I got out of a 15-year relationship um, that was destructive uh, for my own mental health. And uh, I spent some time single and eventually found a woman who I've been dating now for 10 months and I'm deeply, madly in love with and allowing her to love me in a way that no one's really been able to uh, so far in my life. So anyways, um, those kind of two topics, the self-love and forgiveness coming up in this last podcast um, really hit home for me and I was so glad to hear you kind of bring that those topics up uh, with your guest um, would love to hear more more of that in the future, just because I think that those those two pieces can really help uh, really help people get to a place where they they want to be in their lives. Um, that's it. Uh, thank you so much for the podcast, and um, I look forward to to listening more. Bye. Thank you so much for that, Rick. You're spot on. That forgiveness is what it's all about, um, and. I guess there's that that natural link between forgiving others and forgiving yourself. It's like you can't do one without the other, um, at least in one direction. I think you can't forgive yourself without forgiving others, but you probably can. I think a lot of people do forgive others and never get around to forgiving themselves, but I think it's part of the same process. There's something incredibly liberating about forgiving someone. You know, it's like I keep harping about how our ancestors survived by helping one another. So helping people feels really fucking good because, um, you know, that was key to our survival for hundreds of thousands of years as a species. Sticking together, having each other's backs, looking out for each other, loving each other. You know, people lying on the deathbed say it's all about love. That's all that matters. We are the species that loves. We are the species that knows it's love, that knows that it loves, right? I have no doubt that a, that a mother lion, a lioness loves her cubs, but not as consciously as we love each other. Um, yeah, 
I don't, I don't speak Latin, but uh, homo, homo amoris, homo something should really be what we're called. Um, I think we're better at loving than we are at knowing. So I'm not sure sapiens is the right tag for homo there. But in any case, you need to forgive others and then continue to forgive yourself. Move onward with the process, I think. And as I said, it's so liberating because you don't need to carry the weight. And you also don't need, it frees you from thinking you're going to change anyone else. And so many of us, I was guilty of this for a long, long time. I probably still am in ways I'm not conscious of. But so many of us think we're doing other people a favor by trying to change them. And we're not. It's really about ourselves. You know, people are sticking in a relationship where they know. There's a part, there's a part of us that knows things that we wish we didn't know. But we know it anyway. Think about that. Are there things in your life that you know that relationship isn't right for either one of you? Or that job isn't where you want to be? Or... This friendship is actually corrosive to your spirit. This person doesn't take any pleasure in your successes or your happiness. That your happiness is actually an annoyance to them. Uh, We know these things, but we work very hard to keep that knowledge away from the conscious mind. And when you relax that and these things start to bubble up, one of the first things you'll notice is that you're not really helping a lot of the people that you have convinced yourself you're helping, that it's really about you. It's about your ego. You know, it's about my need to seem like a savior. It's about my guilt, uh, around whatever I've been fortunate with. So I'm, uh, you know, trying to spread that to other people in ways that just never works because it, reinforces this feeling that they're inferior to me somehow because I'm we're in this unequal dynamic in any case my point is that forgiving people also allows you to move beyond them in your life to move to another place to let go of a friendship that doesn't work anymore or to move out of a relationship because you realize it's not their fault It's not your fault. Sometimes it's just the way it is. And when it is the way it is, there's nothing you're going to do about that. uh, Except, accept it. Um, Listen, this episode is with Dr. Paul Conti. This is an interesting one. This, uh, um, This came to me through a publicist, and I rarely do interviews with people that are pitched to me through their publicists. But in this case, Dr. Conti, um, he's got a book that uh, just came out uh, about trauma. Uh, And it turns out he's a really interesting guy. Uh, I was sort of expecting him to be a bit of a stuffed shirt. You know, he's a psychiatrist, went to Stanford, went to Harvard, Uh, You know, he's the kind of guy who wears a tie every day and puts on his suit and goes and, you know, he did his fucking homework and um, he's at the top of the heap in terms of 
American medical system. And so I had some suspicions like this guy, you know, we'll see how it goes, but uh, I'm not expecting him to be really all that interesting. And, you know, maybe I, um, you know, maybe I'm not going to really even publish this conversation. But anyway, I talked to him and the guy's awesome. He's a really cool guy, smart, cool, totally tuned in to the fact that the American medical system is a fucking mess. And um, yeah, he's he was not in the least, uh, you know, sort of defensive or, or um, unaware of how fucked up the world of American medicine is. And uh, that was really gratifying. I love that. It's kind of, you know, it relates to this theme of forgiveness. I think we, we're so defensive, we're, you know, reflexively, and maybe as a society even more so now because we're also afraid and, and anxious about the way things are going, um, that any sort of negative feedback on anything to which we're associated with, which we're associated becomes a personal attack. Um, you know, he, Paul Conti here could have been defensive and, and uncomfortable and whatever. When I talk some shit about the American medical system or American medical education and he wasn't at all, he's like, yeah, you're right. Damn. It's, you know, and, and it was instead of a point of contention, it was a point of bonding and, and mutual respect. Um, I love that. You know, people sometimes say to me, well, your parents were married for 50 years and they were super monogamous. It must have been really difficult for them when Sex at Dawn came out or to see that your life is is different from theirs. Not at all, because they, they never felt criticized by my choices. Their attitude was like, it's your life. You live it the way that makes you happy as long as you're loving and kind and compassionate and we don't see you being cruel to anyone, then whatever, doesn't matter. The fact that your choice is different from ours is in no way a criticism or an indictment of us. I think that's a rare but very basic form of wisdom, you know? Some of my friends, I've lost friends because they have this idea that if their life isn't like mine, that I'm, I don't know, that there's some competitiveness or like, like you know, the, like that I'm uh, critical of, of the way they're living. And that's not at all the case. And it's really sad when that happens. Um, when people are like, Oh, you know, they be, they decide they're going to be monogamous or they're going to settle down and have kids or they don't like traveling or whatever, whatever they associate with me when they take a different path. And then suddenly I can see that they're uncomfortable around me as if, as if I think you're not cool if you don't live the way I do. That's ridiculous. I don't feel that way at all. But people assume, I think, because other people do feel that way. You know, they feel threatened if you aren't going down the same road they're going down. I don't give a shit what road you go down. As long as it's leading you toward happiness and truth, that's all that matters. Anyway, the book is called Trauma, the Invisible Epidemic how trauma works, and how we can heal from it. 
Dr. Paul Conti. Uh, I hope you'll check it out and uh, consider picking it up. I'm going to play you out with a song called Suffer. Seems appropriate, right? It's by a guy named Seydu, S-E-Y-D-U. He's from Sierra Leone. Uh, And this was uh, from his album, Diamond Tears. I hope you enjoy this tune and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Uh, By the way, I'm coming to you from Escalante, Utah. I haven't even talked about the Meet Della conference. I just gave my talk a few days ago in Vegas and then we uh, headed straight into the desert. And uh, actually, it's funny in that um, intro snippet I played, the guy mentioned the episode I recorded with Michael. Michael and his wife are here in the desert with us. They're out walking around in a petrified forest at the moment, and they'll be back for dinner in an hour or two. So, yeah, another example of somebody who came into my life through the podcast that uh, we're now hanging out and camping together and having a good time. So I hope to meet all of you one day down the road. And a special shout out to those of you who I have met who are listening. Thank you for being part of my life and for inviting me into yours. This is Suffer by Seydu. Forget to my waiting day tomorrow. Allah, now who say would they go? Tomorrow, Allah, now who 
I never set out to like, be a trauma person um, or, or to write a trauma book, but over the years of doing what I do, I just saw over and over and over again the impact of trauma. It's like looking for the, the, the secret menace behind different disasters that you see around you or different challenges or different ways that, that people are unhappy and suffering. And then, and then looking over and over and over again and seeing the same culprit so many times. And it's, it's not just like trauma itself, but it's what trauma does to us, that, that people then think differently inside. They think differently about themselves and differently about safety in the world and differently about what's possible in the world. And that just promotes so many of the things we try and avoid in life, right? So many of the things that make us unhappy instead of us being empowered and striving and, and happy and making the world a better place for us and, and for everyone else around us. How do you distinguish trauma from the sort of uh, normal challenges that we face in life? You know, fears of death and the death of our parents and, and uh, you know, what's the difference between trauma and, and just a, a negative experience? Yeah, the, the difference is trauma really pushes our coping skills to the limit, right? And, and that's most obvious in the case of an acute trauma, right? Someone right. who's in a bad accident or someone who's, who's assaulted, we can see that, okay, it pushes the coping skills to and beyond their limit. But that also happens with chronic trauma and vicarious trauma, the trauma we can experience because we can be empathically attuned to other people or to events in the world around us. But it mm. pushes us to the limit and beyond the limit of our coping skills. And because of that, it alters us and it changes us as we move forward. Interesting. So you describe, you frame it as pushing our coping skills to the limit. Are our coping skills as human beings, do you think, is there a constant there or are they shaped by culture and experience? In other words, I guess what I'm asking is, 
are our coping skills diminished because we live in a world where we're insulated from so many of the things that uh, people considered part of daily life before death, for example, right? Very few people have killed their own food, right? Or, or seen uh, death. Um, Are we softer and therefore suffer more trauma? I think on the one hand, we are all unique and our experiences of life and, you know, our defense structure and our coping skills and our interface with the world can be can be so different, right? You can have two people who, you know, grew up one block away from one another and and are completely different, right? So how traumatic things impact us comes through the unique lens of who we are and what our strengths and weaknesses are and what our fears are. So on the one hand, we're all very different, even when we're living in the same culture, right? We often make assumptions that we're more similar than we are, but there's another aspect of that too, which I think you're pointing out, is that the, the the soup we swim in, so to speak, right? The culture that we live in, right, also impacts us all very broadly. And if we live in a culture that is that is promoting a sense of vulnerability and a sense of conflict and a sense of insecurity and a sense of distancing from day to day life, mm-hmm. then we set ourselves up, we prime ourselves for trauma to have more of an impact upon each of us, even though we are all different and unique within the culture we live in. Right, right. So it's almost like the hygiene hypothesis, right? Where because children aren't exposed to pathogens, uh, they end up with autoimmune disorders. Do, Do you think something like that happens on a psychological level where as children, people are, are so protected and so sort of like the promotion of the self-esteem movement or everyone gets a trophy, there are no winners and losers. Right. Is that creating a fertile ground for uh, people to experience more of what we're calling trauma? Sure, I, I do think that's, I think that is a, a one aspect of how we inadvertently prime children for trauma, right? Mm. If we shelter children from from what I would call rational and expected adversity, like you know, we're, we we all don't get a trophy at everything, right? So so if we if we promote a different idea, right, that then doesn't match up with the real world, like wow, we're really setting children up for trauma, right? right. But but it, it even goes further than that. Like there, there's so many ways in which like we don't, in my thought about it is the idea of inoculating or vaccinating children against trauma, right? And, and we don't do that. You know, I, I am often struck and I was deeply struck when I first realized that I was learning things as a, as a second year post-medical school, so postgraduate psychiatry resident, I was learning things that I felt like I should have learned this in elementary school, right? Mm. And I really mean that. Like, I, like, not, like what? Not exaggerating, right? The idea of... So, so how important, like, what our self-talk is inside, right? Like, how mm. we see ourselves, right? Yeah. And, and, like, how that plays out inside of us, right? And what impacts how we see ourselves, right? You know, how are the coping skills we foster, right, um, make such a huge difference, right, when we face difficulties. Just how the world around us works, right? The idea that, say, say bullying, right, like, people who bully others, right, as children or adults are, are, are doing that through the 
lens, say, of their own problems, right? Mm. Which, which I don't say to, like, in a sense, excuse the behavior, but for the person, say, on the receiving end, to see, like, why does that person hate me, right? Why is that person so mean and evil to you, right? Because they have a problem right like there's something wrong with them that needs that needs help and needs attention there's some desperate insecurity that leads this person to be aggressive whether it's a bully on a playground in middle school right or it's somebody bullying someone else from the sense of racial privilege or socioeconomic privilege right like there's a lot of bullying that goes on and people we we take it so personally Right, as opposed to thinking like, look, people do things like this because they themselves are hurt, and like that frees me from having a sense of like the intrusiveness of of what someone may be saying. Right, so so you know, the fact that we don't learn these things, that we don't teach in in childhood, right, the, the, the knowledge, even the basic knowledge and the skills and aptitudes and thought patterns, right, that like how to attribute something to self or other, right, that would be protective. And I think we leave children at best very minimally protected, at worst set up for trauma through, again, through the ideas that, that, that you were citing earlier. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I, and that sort of... Um intersects with with something I've been thinking about a lot recently, which is the the absence of um, how can I say this? Like the absence of coming of age rituals in Western Mm -hmm. societies, the absence of a clear delineation between childhood and adulthood. Um, You know, I've studied uh, hunter gatherer societies uh, for a long time. And uh, yes, you know, it's very clear in a hunter-gatherer society when someone goes from being a child to an adult, both for, uh-huh. for men and women. In fact, in many of them, they receive a new name and there's a, huh? a separation right. from the group and then they return with visions and the shaman will uh, go through the visions and help them sort of uh, uh, plot out the course of their adult lives in a way. And um, they're expected to behave differently and, you know, listening to you talk about, you know, this example of something you're learning as an adult that you should have been taught as a child, it, it just strikes me how we don't, we, we let children continue to be children right through their lives in a way, uh, which, as you say, right. leaves them very vulnerable. Right. That, that, that's right. There was a time in my, in my career when I did a lot of work in nursing homes. Right? Mm-hmm. And I covered 12 to 15 nursing homes in one area. And, and I was struck by something I hear in medicine and, in, and I would hear from other psychiatrists, which is that, that like, oh, life is always the middle school playground. Right. That like that plays itself out, you know, in in corporate offices. Right. It plays it out itself out in family homes b- between adults. And and I would see that it even it plays itself out often in 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 human dynamics in nursing homes There's the cool people at one table and people who are marginalized at another. And and, you know, I, I say it to point out, I think, the, the truth of what you're saying, that like if we don't learn things, we don't learn things. And and then we can carry the, the deficits of not learning those things. So the person who feels bad that they're excluded, right? And they, they feel that, you know, in, in the sort of last stage of life, right? Because the same human dynamics are playing out that played out when they were ostracized on the middle school playground. Like, I mean, it's just one example, but, but it's an example of exactly 
what you're saying, that if, if we're not taught things, we don't learn those things, and, and that we don't have the kind of rituals that mark not only our privileges, but our responsibilities, right? Mm. Like, I, I, I mean, I wonder if you'll agree with this, but even like the idea of like getting one's driver's license, right? But you think about like what a responsibility that is, you know, how many people are hurt or killed in cars, right? But I, mean, I remember how badly I wanted my driver's license, right? And, and I was, con- and, and like I saw it as only one thing, like I get something, right? And, right. and look, when I was 17, 18, 19, I wasn't very, I wasn't super responsible. Like I think not very many of us were, right? Because we saw that as just something I get. I turned 17 and I, I go take that test and now I get something, right? Not a sense of, of responsibility, right? Not a sense of a group dynamic, right? And I think we see that in the world around us now where there's not even a sense of responsibility amongst people who are, who are sorry, who are very who are very powerfully positioned in the world around us there's not even a sense of responsibility about like the facts right, right. you know we, we can't agree on whether like two is more than one right and and if we don't even recognize it like hey if i'm the person who wants my side to be two and my side is one if I don't even feel the responsibility of me to acknowledge that one is less than two and one is what I've got, right? Now, maybe I'll still argue my point and I'll redouble my efforts, but can I at least argue that there's a truth in front of me, right? If yeah. we don't even feel that responsibility and we see you know, the powerful figures in the world around us, right, acting that way, what, what are we teaching children? We're teaching there's no responsibility for anything. Yeah. Right. And and that's that's very very dangerous if you think about how we've responded to the pandemic, the erosion of faith in our socioeconomic foundation, right? The impact of systemic racism and exclusion of people for all sorts of reasons. That if we can't even look at that and say here's what the truth is of it, like how are we going to find our way forward? That starts to get scary. If hunter gatherer societies did that, well everyone would die. Right, mm-hmm. I mean, they they can't do that, right? So so they don't do that, right? But in a sense, we have we have the luxury to do things that are dangerous to us, that denigrate us. You know, we have we have the luxury to get away with those things. But if we get away with them for too long, we won't have the luxury anymore, and then we're in real trouble. And that may be now. Yeah, I, it certainly feels like it to me. You know, you were talking about bullying earlier, and you know. And the, the middle school playground, that clearly seems to be uh, what's happening in, in Washington um, right. and also on Wall Street. I mean, there's no sense of responsibility in economics. And it, it's a strange thing because, you know, here I, I wanted to push you a little bit on trigger warnings and safe spaces and obviously sure. you know, exploring this sort of overprotectiveness. But at the same time, uh I feel like there's a lack of uh, decorum on a national level. So it's almost like we're hyper protective on a personal uh, level, but on a national level where anything goes or on an economic level. I wonder if those things are related somehow. Oh, Um, sure. I, I think they're related through the lens of hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. Right. That's, I, I think that's that is hypocrisy writ large. Right. And, and I think it, it fits with like the ideas around sort of cancel culture. Right? right. That, you know, I don't know, it was a little while ago where there was some I don't know who it was, but somebody who was like a, a slip of the tongue or who knows what happened. But the person said a word that they, they, they shouldn't have said. Right. And for all intents and purposes, like 
I mean, my read of the news I saw was it didn't seem like that per- was a bad person or like, you know, like it didn't seem like it was a slip. Or something. It just seemed like a mistake or at least like one couldn't look at it and call it something different with any surety. Right. But that, that's not, the person was treated as if they did done something awful. Right. And mm-hmm. and and, you know, there's a hypocrisy to saying, you know, we're looking around with vigilance for anything somebody is doing wrong. Right, uh, right. So we so we want to be overprotective in that sense of of say of children. Right. We don't expose them to anything negative. Somebody makes a slip of the tongue and says something negative, or there's a wardrobe malfunction on television. Like, oh my gosh, like, <laughs> let's go get that person who's done yeah. something so awful. Right. Yeah. And I think it's precisely that hypocrisy because it is the opposite. Right. But it, it gives the illusion of like, oh, there's something we're paying attention to. There's something we're being diligent about. Right. And what we're, what we're really doing is is allowing this bigger picture of of bullying to play out right whether it's someone yeah. who wants everyone to think and act exactly how they think is right or it's someone who wants to do things that are completely outside the pall of reasonable behavior right and sort of and, and pretend that's right right we have a lot of and then emperor's new clothes going on right like let's not look at what's going on over there but we're going to be really meticulous about oh this person who had a slip of the tongue or that person or you know the these small things we're going to protect all these children you know from from like having to face that real life as competition in it right but while we're doing that right you know it, it's sort of like the people with the idea of rearranging the deck chairs on the titanic right yeah that, that like that's a lot of deck chair rearranging when like we may be sinking the ship that we're all on if yeah. we can't be honest and reasonable and have some interactions between us that are grounded in being honest and reasonable even if we disagree i i feel like uh, I resonate with everything you just said. The one word that jumped out at me was the word allow. You said we're allowing, uh, you know, the bullies in Washington to take over. We're allowing uh, a particular uh, news channel, news in, in air quotes, of yeah. course, to promulgate all sorts of nonsense and, and be taken seriously. But I, I wonder if it isn't also a question of people feel helpless they, they feel like we can't control what's happening in the economy. We can't control what's happening in politics. We can't control what's happening in so many different levels of institutions. And so it almost becomes like, uh, you know, sacrificing virgins in the volcano to appease the gods. There's a disconnect between what we're doing and, and what's happening, but we're trying to, you know, ritualize uh, some sort of uh, insistence upon a certain kind of behavior as a way to affect on the micro level as a way to affect the macro level they're disconnected completely because they don't care uh, hedge fund managers right. don't give a damn what we think about them they just want to control the tax system to their benefit but it, it kind of feels that almost like you know the the puritan witch trials and and stuff like that where there's this uh, you know, sacrifice of the innocents in order to appease the gods. Right. No, I, I think like, this is a great question. I mean, you're, you're bringing out like these these like really important concepts that are hard to capture, right? But I, I think the answer to that is like that sounds in a sense so complicated, right? And I think like this is part of why it's so hard, right? Because we feel disempowered and detached, right? And we feel lack of control. And then there's a tendency to just ally with whatever it seems like like might be most helpful to me or to run away from it all and hide, right? And right. I think that's because that way of looking at it 
which there is truth to, but it makes it too complicated. What we're doing is missing the simple, right? And I think that's the answer that good mental health on individual levels, and I think on sociological levels, right, it, is, it comes through the lens of simplicity. Now, mm. just because something is simple doesn't mean it's easy to achieve, right? But the, right. But the concept, I think, is not complicated. How we take what you just said, and we, we take it away from something that's so complicated that we're all disempowered, and my goodness, what's going on that we can't control, and, and we change that dynamic is through the lens of simplicity. Like, what if we insist upon a, accountability to... to to truth and to some basic principles, right? So the rubber hits the road if, if you say you're an advocate for me, right? You're representing a, a political um, opinion I, that I agree with, right? And you're going about it in a way that's, that's wrong or dishonest or bullying, right? And I say, like, I don't actually, I don't want that. I don't approve of that, right? Like, that's not how I want, I'd rather have my needs not met. Right. If I'm for for policy A and you're going to lie and push and bully and 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 torment people and and do things that are underhanded to get that done, I'm okay with not. Right. And that's what I think. I like I think most people in this country are reasonable, well-grounded people. You know, if you just go door to door, you find people who can who can attach themselves to some basic values and expectations and who treat their neighbor that way. Right. Right. You know, if I want to borrow an egg, I'll give you an egg back tomorrow. Like pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Thank you for loaning me the egg. Right. And, and I think if we ground to that and we say, look, we would take away then the, the, the incentive to do these things. You know, people who behave this way, their products wouldn't be bought. Right. People who behave this way won't get reelected. Right. And we can ground to the simple truths that we are telling like, for our children in their early education. Right. We are telling them in early education the basics of being polite and being reasonable and you know, don't take something from someone else. Right. If you took something, say you're sorry and give it back. Like you'd be open, be honest right to do the right things work hard it'll get you ahead like we do try and do that right i i think in in early education we may be overprotective too but we do that and if we grounded ourselves to an insistence on the, these basic principles of early education and accountability i think we could change it all because now you know we we don't want to buy what someone else is saying, even if it serves me, if it's wrong or you're bullying your way to get it or what you're going to do to make me money if I'm investing with you. Like if I, if I look at that and I think that's not right, well, how about I just say no? Yeah. And, and but like, I, that's actually easier yeah. to, to do than we might think. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess it is. But I mean, it's so hard because our, our economic value structure has diverged from the, the ethical value structure that you're talking about, right? Um, right. You know, in, in grade school, you're taught to share, uh, you know, if you don't have enough for everyone, you don't bring it to school, right? But in right. business school, that's not what you're taught. In business school, you're taught to hoard and get a monopoly and drive out competition and this sort of ruthless celebration of selfishness um, is, is celebrated and rewarded in large segments of our society. And so, you know, we sort of set ourselves up for a conflict. And I guess what, what we're really talking about, people might be listening to all this and saying, what the hell does this have to do with trauma? But I think what we're talking about is we live in a society that is itself traumatized. Right. 
Absolutely. Yes. It's trauma that, that distills down to like, I'm powerless. I just have to get what there is for me. Right. I need more and more and more, no matter what it is. Right. Like it, it's trauma that makes that desperation in people. And it's also trauma that drives us to, to untenable places socioeconomically. Right. Like it is traumatic for people who work in entire industries that they can't make good livings. Right. right? And like, exactly. we need to say that that's not acceptable. Right. Like we, we talk about, OK, no, we don't want to pay more for gas. Like, OK, like I understand no one wants to pay more for gas. But if we, we look at, well, what are we paying for? I don't want to pay more for gas if it just goes into someone's pocket who already has a trillion dollars. Right. But I'll pay a little more for gas if it helps the people along the line, like have it make a decent living. Right. So, you know, we look at these endpoints that come from places of desperation. If I don't have enough money for food, then I, I, I just want to pay less for gas. And I don't I don't care about the, you know what's beyond that. Right. But if we can free up the privation that that oppresses us and then leads to this traumatic mindset. Right. You know, it's a mindset that things are not going to be OK and I'm not going to be OK. And how many people feel that, whether it's because of, you know, there's violence in the home or violence around them or various aspects of oppression and abuse that they can't get away from. Or if they're disempowered in the world around us because of their socioeconomic position or for many, many other reasons. And that sense of being beleaguered and desperate and desperate. Right. Leads people to think like, look, I've got to just take care of me. Right. And, and like, that's what I got to think about. That's a natural. That's what we we, we come to as humans, right? Yeah. But we don't have to live that way. I mean, we think about how much plenty we have, and we can have a bunch of social guidelines that are in accord with reasonableness and truth. Like, you know, most people want to do what's right in the world. They don't want to look to get every cent they can, even if it comes at the expense of somebody else. Like, you give people enough and the ability to work a little harder and do a little more and get ahead. And, and like, we, we can actually do that, right? We don't have to be in this place of desperation, which comes from trauma that, that, that we've experienced now in a lot of ways for a lot of years that has this country in a very different and very beleaguered mindset. You know, I'm I'm uh, gratified that you are so open to seeing this through a political and economic lens, because I thought that you were going to, you know, stick to a very medical uh, paradigm. And uh, and for me, that that's a little frustrating because I feel like the medical paradigm is important, but it's you're treating people who are victimized by the world that they're living in. And, right. you know, as I mentioned before, my, my wife being a psychiatrist, the worst thing in her experience was trying to help someone and then sending them back to a dysfunctional family right. setting, for example, or a job that was humiliating and disempowering and right. toxic. It's like how as a physician, how do you heal someone who's swimming in a poisoned river? You know, it's. Um, so right. I'm really I'm really happy to to hear you talk about these things in a much more holistic way. That's um, yeah, I appreciate well, I, that. I, I, yeah, and, and I appreciate you taking note of it, right? And and, and pointing out even your wife's experience as a as a, a mental health practitioner, right? That we work in these systems that are so siloed, right? Our care systems, right? Our medical systems, our mental health systems are so siloed that they're they're they often don't look to actually help us, 
right? I mean, there are many, many systems where, you know, you tell someone some tactics to decrease their, their sense of tension inside, etc., and you send them back to the same abusive place, and we can check a bunch of boxes on some electronic chart, right, that says that that's okay, and that's what was achieved during the 12 or 15-minute appointment, right? <laughs> same thing in general medical settings where people yeah. present with five problems, half of which are driven by mental health problems, right? And we don't want to look at that the same way that we don't want to look at where do our problems come from right? If, if half or more of what people bring to primary care doctors comes through mental health problems, right? And, and all the people we're coming to mental health care for is coming through the lens of mental health problems. How can we look at that without looking at, again, I come back to the soup we're swimming in. It's an expression people said when I was a kid, like you can't understand anything unless you look at what's the soup that person is swimming in. So we have to look at the p- politics. We have to look at the socioeconomic situation, even take something less dramatic than abuse. If you feel like I'm working really hard and I just I can't get ahead but right? I'm living paycheck to paycheck I can't get ahead how, how does someone feel better how do you how do you help that person with their depression right? right and and we need to step away from this silo effect where where the people who are involved in mental health care are often run so ragged by the systems everybody works in right hence this term burnout which I think is like not the right term because it implies there's a fault in the practitioner the doctor or in the therapist or in the mm. nurse right as opposed to saying how about people who work in these oppressive systems that are just bullying them and, and grinding them down while they're not giving good care to the patients while everything is siloed in a way to make a bunch of paperwork that says it's all okay and and nowhere do we actually meet the real world people are living in as they're trying to understand themselves and solve their problems which which is why this idea and i write about in the book and i talk about it in my clinical work and in my consulting work of like helping people make a true life narrative right because like this is a way we can start this even outside of systems of like what is actually my story right is a lot of people a lot i see this over and over and over again if people have stories in their head that are unfair stories created by trauma that say how they're not good enough and how they failed right and it doesn't acknowledge that oh look, look what happened to that person who who escaped from you know something so difficult and is working so hard to make ends meet like you know people often have so much to feel good about and be proud of but the internal dialogue is shaped by trauma and by traumatic things and and often what's going on inside is telling them the opposite so you know we can empower ourselves to be healthier in our own lives and healthier for the people around us and healthier on those bigger levels, right? Because if I don't want to accept the lies that trauma tells me, right? My own trauma tells me how inadequate I am and I'm never good enough. Nothing I do will ever really make a difference, right? Like, like you know, I have that inside of me from trauma, right? But in, in trying to fight that, right, I help myself. I'm better for the people around me. And then I can say no if some investment opportunity, I, I'm not quite sure if it's sketchy, right? I, I'll say no to that, right? Or you know, some, some way of treating other people, right? Like, I'm much better to advocate for what's right and take a stand for truth on those big levels if I'm taking care of myself on the smallest level, which is inside of me, the one person level inside of myself. That's how we knit together the truth of it all and how the socioeconomics and the politics and the medical aspects, it all comes together What in real people that we are far too often just simply not recognizing. How do you deal with the the contradictions within your own um within your own life. The fact, for example, uh, you know, you went to Stanford, you went to Harvard, uh, that's a pretty high stress path to take, right? There's a lot of 
uh, sort of built-in mm-hmm. chronic trauma there. A lot yeah. of uh, medical school. I'm, I'm always struck by the fact that doctors are advocating, you know, you should get at least eight hours of sleep every night. You should have as little stress in your life as possible. You know, you should pay attention to your relationships. And then they go to medical school where they're, you know, working 18 hour shifts or 24 hour shifts. There seems to be a a a sort of a built in chronic trauma in the medical education. Right. Absolutely. It's crazy. I I, I don't understand why. Why is why is medical training still doing that? Being able to make good decisions without sleeping for 24 hours is not a skill that anyone should be cultivating. Yeah, the, the medical education system, which which extends forward to, to the, the purveyance of medical care, right, to the systems that then doctors work in after medical school, right. has tremendous flaws. I mean, there may be reasons to say uh, in a learning phase to see patients longitudinally, say, over 24 hours, right, because the things, but then to, to give the person sort of rest, like you're not to say, okay, after 36-hour shift, you come back 12 hours later, right? So, so even when there are reasons for the longitudinal things, it doesn't have have to be combined with things that are that are sometimes sadistic and sometimes just simply inane right like you know a part of what we learned not always and i was fortunate that that this did not pervade the education that i that i received but was present at times in it of this idea that well you should be you should be embarrassed or ashamed if you don't know something like so imagine now you have students right, right. like of <laughs> Of course you don't know things. That's why you're a student, right? right? But if you say, like, I don't know that, there's like, you know, there's a sense of shock. Like, you know, you've, 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 you know, you've uttered profanity in the middle of church or something, right? Like, like, that's not okay to say. And like, think of the culture. What is that saying? It's saying you are inadequate and you should be ashamed if you don't know an answer. And obviously there are times you don't know an answer, so just make something up right? Instead of the shared humanness of their times, we all don't know answers, right? And we can like, we can think more about them. We can figure things out, right? I can not know an answer and maybe not be ashamed of it, but know like I'm going to go figure out the answer, right? And, and like there, there's an element of humanness that involves also meeting people where they're at. Like people come to care or, you know, often with me or with the, the other people in my in the group of practitioners we all work together right they come and they often they don't know the answer right they're they're scared right they 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 want help they feel embarrassed or ashamed that they need help and if we can meet them in a human place that says look i'm not in a sense betraying i'm superior to you and i have all the answers like like i'm a human being with his own problems too right and i go get my own help to figure them out Mm. Right. And and like then there's a there's a shared humanness to that. And I want to know everything that's going on with you. Right. I don't want to try and help you feel better if there are other things in your life that need to change for you to feel better. Right. Like we we don't have a process of realness. And how could we have that in a in a system that wants to pretend like we can throw medicines at everything. Right. And you know how many times I've seen that the answer was throw medicines at that person's depression, throw medicines at that person's panic attacks. Right. Instead of like, well, they're depressed and having panic attacks because of X and X is something like really awful that needs to be addressed. 
right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's actually not that hard to marshal these resources in the world around us. We're, we're so mired in the paperwork and in the you know, things that have cost so, so much right, in our health system that we don't do the basic things of like just resources to help people, other well-meaning human beings, right? Real psychotherapy that, that gets at what's actually going on inside of a person, which, which ultimately, again, comes back to my message is this all comes to recognizing trauma and the ways that we can intervene in trauma, which is actually not rocket science. I mean, that's part of the message in my book is this is not that complicated. I'm not taking some feel, some subject and then looking at it in some esoteric pie in the sky way. I'm saying, look, let's look at this because this is real and it's impactful right now. And there are things we can do to change it like today. It's interesting that the subtitle of your book is The Invisible Epidemic. Is that right? Yes. Trauma, the invisible epidemic. Exactly. It, it's interesting because it's a it's a form of invisibility that is uh, due to the fact that it's omnipresent. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. It, it's like it's right. invisible as as the air in some way. It's there everywhere. And so we don't recognize it in a way. And the more we talk, the more I, I, I'm thinking about how trauma is is sort of like inflammation in a sense that it underlies so many other disease uh, diseases and yes. disorders. They're either caused by it or or um, made worse by it. Um, yes. And and also you you said something earlier. You used the the term empathic trauma that I thought was very interesting. Uh, and this all ties back into how if we're around people who are traumatized, then we ourselves. It's impossible to be healthy if the people are happy if the people around you are miserable. And I feel like that's another thing that's missed in American culture and all this individuality. People think right. they can, you know, it's like the people who think they can build a, uh, a shelter and stock up on canned goods and guns and they'll survive the apocalypse. And they're not understanding how uh entwined they are with other people you know you're not going to survive alone and you can't be happy alone um right yeah and that's not really a question but (laughs) it's something i was thinking about while you were speaking you also uh, distinguish between chronic trauma and um acute and i was thinking about a book i read a while ago called a paradise built in hell by rebecca solnit uh really interesting it's about disaster sociology and so okay studies of how people behave and experience acute disasters so war okay. uh, earthquake you know flooding something like that and what they found is that people often look back on those experiences as the best time of their lives oh yes Absolutely. There's a difference between, so acute trauma, say, is something that happens acutely, right? So if someone, you know, bursts through the door where either of us are and attacks us, we're we're acutely traumatized. We don't expect it. It's shocking. We'd get hurt, right? That's acute trauma, right? But, But high intensity situations, 
right? Disaster situations often give people the, the opportunity to distinguish themselves, right? To behave in ways that make them feel proud of themselves that they, that they, that they didn't have before. I mean, I've often said to people who can't tell me one good thing about themselves when I, I can see wonderful things about themselves and they can't tell me anything good about themselves. And, I, and I'll, I'll bring the conversation around the way. If I could snap my fingers and, and you could be in a disaster zone, Right, you could be that that would it would fix all the problems, right? Because I know the kind of person that person is. That person would 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 want to help. That person would marshal their resources. Would start to look at like who who you know who's worse off than I am that needs more. That person would show themselves all the things I know about them because I see mm. them from the outside, right? right? They don't know about themselves. And like what what else is going to blind you to good things about yourself that that someone can obviously and easily see from the outside? It is only trauma and the the evils of trauma and the shame and everything trauma brings that the person wouldn't know that. But you give that person an opportunity. And I have seen that in my clinical work over the years where an opportunity like that arises, right? And that person then, what they do in that opportunity is they be in the active sense, right? They are being who they are inside because they're given an opportunity to do it. That's very different. And we don't often enough give people opportunities for like good, robust experiences that can make them feel better about themselves. Experiences in the communities we live in. You know, we, don't, we don't need an earthquake or a disaster to do that. Right? But we, we don't have social structures that glorify that. We should have social structures mm. that glorify that. Right? Yeah. If you're worse off than I am, let me go out this weekend and do something for you. Right? right? Why right. do why we, there's not nearly enough of that in the world around us? Well, and, and the great tragedy is that is that so many of the people who have the most resources, right? I in I wrote a book called Civilized to Death, and there's a chapter in there yes. about what I call rich asshole syndrome. And it's the idea that most people think that people become obnoxious, people who are obnoxious, who, who sort of uh, step outside of the expectations of society are better at becoming rich because they're willing to make those those bad decisions or, you know, cut corners. What I was proposing is, no, being very wealthy is psychologically difficult because as human beings, we are not designed to have much more than other people. Our evolution has led us to expect that we all have the same and we all share. That's how we survive for 300,000 years. So it's psychologically traumatic to have more than others. Uh, and I experienced this the first time I went to India and I was sitting in a restaurant and there were children, street kids standing next right. to my table staring at my food. And right. it, there was this helplessness. How can I help them? How can I? I can't solve this right. problem. There's nothing I can do except develop scar tissue and go on with my life and step over the bodies, you know? Um, And I think that is so painful for people. And they don't, because they're of what society teaches us, people don't understand that the best way to feel better is to help someone else. It's not some, you know, it's not, it's not some erudite Christian teaching. It's basic human evolution. We survive yes. by helping each other and being integrated. Um, yeah. So how yes. do you deal with, you know, when you're dealing with a patient and they're, they're unhappy, they're, they're, you know, maybe even suicidal and you see that they're socially isolated. Right. There are no pills you can give them to solve that problem. No. Right. No. I Although mean, in America, you- you're. Yeah. In America, you're most likely to get pills. Right. Yeah. And there are yeah. no pills to solve the problem. 
right? Right. So yet there are answers to that, which which I think the answer is we root back to the simple, right? So the problems, say problems surrounding money, right? You know, I, I, I'm fortunate and privileged to work, and it's really true, with people across the socioeconomic spectrum, right? From one extreme to the other and all in, the, in between. And what I, what I have seen over and over and over again is the further you get from kind of the middle of the bell curve, the more money contributes to psychological problems, right? right? So too little of it makes it, there's distress, there's vulnerability, right? When there's too much of it, if there are underlying problems, that sense of responsibility, a sense of how to be in the world. So money at both ends of the spectrum can, can exacerbate mental health problems and i have seen that over and over again right but but what's interesting is you do the same thing across the board is you ground a person to the 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 just in a sense it's the basic i I love that you use the word evolution i think that's that's true it's the it's evolutionary common sense right that it is good to do something for others and people can do that no matter what the, the person who feels paralyzed by wealth and what to do with it and a sense of 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 shame about wealth and it fuels depression it's a scenario i've seen right can go get out there and do do some direct uh, one direct good thing for one person start right. doing that that feels better and often that leads to oh to interesting ways to use money for a good purpose right someone who has no money whatsoever can still offer someone a hand can still offer someone a compliment and like it may seem like oh that's hokey but like it's not right like it's the basic simplicity of our evolution that tells us you know that that, that's what makes us realize that we're worth something we have value inside us even the idea of giving blood right someone i i someone who recently was having trouble like understanding their worth and and like you know trouble seeing that right despite having a million wonderful qualities who then gave blood and realized, like, look, I'm doing something for someone who's going to get this blood, like, you know, and, and if this is in me, then it's also in me to, like, persevere and to be a good person in the world. And, like, there's a simplicity to that that we're so far away from that we, we inadvertently perpetuate our problems by you know, not realizing what, what it sort of greases the wheels of progress in ourselves and in our societies. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I was reading uh, in the notes for your book that that you you connect trauma and shame and and shame sort of uh, turbocharges or or you know fortifies yeah. the trauma in in many ways. And I was thinking about a a paper I read years ago, uh, written by an anthropologist in Papua New Guinea, uh-huh. and uh, is a woman, Australian woman. I, f- I forget her name, but the. The story is she's she's there in this village in the hinterlands and she hears a commotion at night and a lot of some yelling and thumping and and then it dies down and and she goes back to sleep. And in the morning she gets up and she goes down to the river and women are are doing some uh, wash by the river and uh, they're talking about what happened the night before, which is that a man snuck in through the window of one woman's hut and climbed into bed with her. And when she woke up, she was shocked and she said, ah, get out of yeah. here. And she pushed him and he fell in the mosquito net and tripped and fell out the window. And, uh-huh. and they're all laughing. And she said, the Australian, the anthropologist said, why are you laughing? He, he wanted to, to rape you. And there's no word for rape. So she had to explain what she meant. He wanted to have sex with you and you weren't interested. And, yeah. and the Women, the woman in question looked at her and she says she looked at me with a, 
a mixture of confusion and and huh. sadness. Huh. Huh. And she said, well, how could he hurt me? It's only a penis. And so she, the rest of the paper, the, the author is exploring the idea that we have weaponized the penis and the experience of rape by applying huge amounts of shame to that experience. Whereas in a culture that doesn't see, doesn't apply that shame to the experience, it's not, the, the amount of trauma is negligible compared to, to ours. Uh, it's similar to research showing that children who are sexually abused in a in a way that isn't physically traumatic it's just you know their uncle touched them in a way that was inappropriate they experience the trauma when the adults find out and everyone freaks out that's where the, right. okay, the bulk of the trauma because then it's a social shame situation so i guess what i'm getting at is do you how do you see shame and trauma interacting Oh yeah, I think shame is like shame is trauma's top henchman, right? So you can't talk about trauma without talking about shame, and shame ushers in all the other problems. Right? So, so the, what is the poison here, right? The, the trauma makes the poison, but the poison is the shame, right? And I think the stories you're pointing out are, are I think, speaking very strongly to how we we misappropriate shame, we misapply shame. Right. So do, do we often apply the shame is felt by the person who is raped, not by the person who does the raping. Right. Like, absolutely. That is that is that is, this is tragic. Right. I mean, it's terrible that that could be the case. Right. And I think what you're pointing out, I don't know the specifics of what actually happened to the woman in Papua New Guinea. Right. But 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 it's interesting. Right. That in the beginning, when you're telling the story that the anthropologist told. Right. The women are laughing. Right. And they're laughing at him. Right. And, and, and so what what I'm, what that makes me think, and I don't know the whole story, so I'm not sure, is is the shame then being applied in a sense where it belongs. Right. They're like, who's got something to feel ashamed of? The guy who climbed in somebody else's window. Right. right. And the right. idea that that like we don't apply shame because shame is very very powerful right that's why it's evolved in us right shame really changes behavior right but trauma hijacks shame and uses it against us mm. right so so that this i think you're using a great examples because if someone is 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 attacked or is assaulted right it triggers automatic shame because that's the societal soup that we swim in Right. Mm. Then often our helping mechanisms, helping in quotes, reinforce that shame. Right. We do that all the time, even in mental health. If something didn't work for someone, we, we, we talk about how they failed it. Right. Oh, that mm. person failed CBT and, and Prozac. Right. What does that mean? Failed. I mean, that implies that what was done should have succeeded. Right. And you <laughs> failed it. Right? right. Instead of like maybe we applied something inappropriate, like we make shame through our helping mechanisms more often than than or at least as often as we do good. It's not clear to me that the big systems of help we have in mental health are not doing more harm than good. They may be. I mean, in some right. cases they help, right? But in some cases, the systems themselves, like, you know, even, I'll tell you a, a side I think is really I- important, that there are times now I don't send someone to an emergency room, right? When they're, they're in a mental health crisis, right? Where like 15 years ago, I, I would have, I absolutely would have sent them and I would have considered it wrong, like even malpractice not to have sent them. 
right? Mm. But now the risks are so much higher. You send somebody somewhere, they're waiting for ages, right? Then they go to like some mental health room where they're basically stripped and put, you know, even if there was no, you know, they didn't say anything that would make one think that that, that, that that should be the case, right? The process of the invasiveness, the stigma, it's not this way everywhere, but I, I believe it is this way most places from coast to coast where where I yeah. think, oh, it's a roll of the dice now that if I send that person for urgent help, in some cases, I feel that I am more likely to do harm to them than I am to do good. So I don't send people for emergent help when only even 10 years ago, maybe certainly 15, it would have been so wrong to not do that. I mean, so you think about that's not that much long a period of time for our helping systems to have degraded so much. And I think there's been a lot of degradation over many years. But to me, that is shocking as a psychiatrist to say I often can't send people to emergency for emergency care because I'm worried after that experience to say they're suicidal. Are they going to be how they're going to feel after that experience? They're discharged. Nothing has happened. It's 18 hours later, except they feel worse about themselves. I put them at greater risk. Yeah. And, and I think that this is an example of how we hijack shame and use it against ourselves as a society when we're most vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. That must be very frustrating for you to to be working within that system. Uh, it, it, yeah. I, I, I'm reminded of the research. I'm, I can't remember who did it, but it was someone I think it was at Yale. Uh, 20, 30 years ago, the the professor, as a sort of an experiment, I don't know if they were postdocs, or, but it was a psychiatry uh, a class. He had them go to a, a psychiatric center saying that they were hearing voices and they were feeling self-destructive and they were admitted. And then 24 hours later, they all, all the students said, OK, this was an experiment. I feel totally better now. Everything's fine. And they wouldn't let them out. They the the psychiatric center refused yeah. to believe them. So once they admitted that, once they they presented as having any sort of self destructive thoughts or or psychiatric disorder, the system is set up in such a way that you're stigmatized and you're essentially trapped. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? Have you read that well, paper? Yes, and I don't I, I don't recall the, the specifics. Of it, but yes, the general concept, yes, and I would, I would, I would say this is I think today you would have you would have a different problem, right? That 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 a person would present saying, right. "Hey, I'm sick and I need help," and would say all these things and have trouble getting help in the first place. Yeah, they wouldn't right? get in. So they'd be equally stigmatized because now right. what's attached is something that is stigma that ultimately people look at in a stigmatizing way, and you can't even get in the door to get help. That's why I sat in a waiting room. Then they put me in another room. Somebody saw me eight hours later. Then another eight hours later, and then ultimately you come out, and you it's not that you can't get out once you get in; it's that you can't get in even though you need help. Right, right. You know, when you mentioned empathic uh, trauma earlier, I was reminded of a friend of mine. Um, I, I be, when I was doing my PhD in, in psychology, I started off doing research uh-huh. on um, oncologists and intensive care physicians, and I uh, wanted to. Uh-huh. Under, I was studying burnout, as you mentioned earlier, yeah. and I wanted to understand why some personalities are better structured to uh, withstand the sort of existential despair of having most of your patients die. 
Um, some people can do that for you know the the duration of their career, and others just right. can't handle it after right. a while. So that's what I was studying, and I ended up switching um, because it turned out I wasn't well suited to uh, spend a lot of time in oncology wards. But uh, I have a friend who was a, a tattoo artist, and uh-huh. we were talking about my research one day, and he said, you know. Uh, tattoo artists have very high depression and suicide rates. And it's because we're constantly in the presence of people who are suffering. Because when I, I, when I do a tattoo, I'm hurting that person and I can see see them. I can feel them tensing up and, and suffering and it gets into me. It's, it's impossible to filter it out. Um, and so it's just an example of when you said empathic trauma, I, I thought of him and, and how, you know, dentists have a very high depression and suicide rate and, and drug abuse. And, you know, because they're causing pain, it's a it, we're not designed to be in the presence of pain. And it's impossible to be around pain without suffering ourselves. Right. Right. Yes. And, and, and that's this is part of the, the beauty of being human, right, is that we are empathic and we can feel other people's pain, right? Yeah. But of course, the other side of that coin is that we can feel other people's suffering too. And and there are yeah. people who present to me and they, they present with all the signs and symptoms of, of, of what gets called classic PTSD and their trauma is vicarious. Yeah. Right? And that's, and are we going to say now the way that it's set up, there's certain criteria, which I think it's inane, that there's a diagnostic system that would say, well, if you came across that vicarious trauma syndrome in a certain way, we'll count it. And if in a different way, we won't. Right. Yeah. I mean, it makes no sense. Like a person presents like that's the, that's what's going on in them. They really are depressed. They really do have a startle response. They really are not sleeping. Like that's real in them. And it comes from a place of, of vicariousness, right? In a sense, we can celebrate our, our the empathy in humans, right? But we also need to acknowledge that that happens to us. And if, if we don't take care of people when they're encountering suffering all the time, right? I mean, you have to think, why are our, our oncology units not the places we, we put the most resources in? Like as a society, can, can we make oncology units like five-star hotels? Like I bet we could, right? I mean, we, we, we certainly waste a lot of money on other, on a, a lot of other, uh, on things that like, you know, millions and upon millions upon millions of dollars go to that that do no good or for some shallow purpose, right? Or, you know, yeah. squandering of resources. Like, why, why can't we take care of people better when they're in vulnerable places, when they're the patient on the oncology ward? And, right. and what about the people who are the, the, the nurses, the medical assistants, the nursing assistants, the doctors on those units, the respiratory therapists? Why, why don't we take better care of, of them and you know we don't we just we don't value that enough we look the other way and we put our resources somewhere else like somebody who buys a new tv when you know they need a cavity filled that that's yeah. how we do that as a we do that as a society and like we don't have to if we stop and think about that i i, I do i still i maintain the assertion that we can behave differently but it's not in some high you know, newfangled way that's super complicated. It's the opposite as we come back to the basic simplicity, which has been a theme running through this whole conversation you and I have had is like the healthy aspects we're talking about are through that lens of common sense, evolutionary simplicity, right? And the things that get, that get so complicated and are so hurtful are, are, are the opposite. Um, I know, I know that you're skeptical about medications as uh, an appropriate treatment for something that's chronic or systemic on a cultural level, as am I. 
Um, but I wonder what your thoughts are on things like uh, MDMA, uh, assisted psychotherapy, or psychedelic psychotherapy. You're in Oregon, I, I believe, uh, yes. where these, where at least psychedelics uh, have been legalized. Do you see a role for these substances in the treatment of trauma or other disorders? Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I want to say I, I think to do what we do well, one has to know what all the arrows are and have all the arrows in the quiver, right? So there are times when medicines absolutely save lives, change lives, right? So it's a matter though, are we using the right tool, right? And we tend to just go to the tool that's easiest and cheapest. That's how our society works, right? So we throw medicines in 15 minute appointments at people, but there's a place for all of this, including what get called alternative modalities. I mean, so they're alternative modalities just because they're not in the mainstream, right? But the, the research, the data, the, the, the clinical experience that's been had in some of the centers that are studying this and the data and experience from years and years ago and from the anecdotal evidence from people who are, who are using these, these methods outside of the systems, right? Which is why I think it's wonderful that Oregon is progressing in a way to put structure and safety around this because these are, are um, modalities that I think have immense and I don't use that word lightly, the immense uh, potential to help. And I think we see that. They do help when they're used judiciously, appropriately. They're an arrow in the quiver um, that can, can really do tremendous good. Yeah. And part of that Let's, is, if, sorry, if I can say one more thing, I'm yeah, sorry. Sure. Part of it is through an anti-trauma. Th that, to me, has helped me really solidify my thoughts around the role of trauma because they're so strongly anti-trauma modalities. Right. Like that, that's what they're, you know, when you talk about what, what, what are people trying to do if they're, they're using MDMA or they're using ketamine, they're using psilocybin, like what are the aims, right, of the practitioner and, and the person, the aims, if you look at what are those aims, I mean, it's like distills down to trauma almost 100% of the time. I mean, not always, but almost 100% of the time that close. So to me, as we get this spotlight on these very powerful helping modalities, it shows us what we're actually treating. Right, that we, we're not treating depression, anxiety, um, you know, addiction. Right, like we're, those are the branches of the tree. What we're actually treating, if we want to help someone change their lives, is the trauma that's fueling and promoting those things. Right, right, and the shame. Right, I mean, right. MDMA yes. is is also called an empathogen. Right, where yes, you, the the resistance and the the anger and the all all that stuff that's fueled by shame gets diminished enough that you can actually communicate. Yeah, it's yep. uh, if we're treating very... trauma, we're going to treat the shame it's wrapped up in. Right. Exactly. So, so exactly. yes, abs absolutely. Yes. Well, listen, I've taken more of your time uh, than <laughs> than I deserve here. Oh, it's a pleasure. Uh, it's but a pleasure. it's been really great talking with you. The book is called Trauma, the Invisible Epidemic. I hope people will will pick it up. And uh, thank you. I thank mean, you. I, I have to say, look, I I. Your publicist reached out to me and I thought, OK, trauma is interesting. I'd be interested in talking about that. But uh, I, I thought you would be sort of a con conventional, conventionally trained psychiatrist, uh, you know, pretty conservative ideas. And I've been very um, pleasantly surprised at just how Thank deeply you. and broadly you view these these issues. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. It means a lot to me to hear that. Thank you. Thank you so much for that and for having me on. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed that chat with Dr. Paul Conti. 
Uh, I'm going to play you out with a different tune than the normal smoke alarm. It's a song called Suffer Well. It's by the Simon Von Gent Band, South African guy that I met years ago when I was in South Africa. And we hung out. I went and saw him play in a bar. And uh, yeah, interesting thing. Anyway, this song is called Suffer Well. And it's it's about the idea that we're all going to suffer. Everybody suffers. That's not an option. That's you're gonna. It's a requirement. You're gonna suffer. So the point is to suffer in such a way that you learn as much as possible. You get as much out of it. So you're gonna suffer. So here's hoping you'll suffer well. Thanks for listening. You can watch this episode on my YouTube channel, Chris Ryan, uh, because we did this interview on the computer, so you can see us chatting if you prefer that method. Catch you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye. But he swallowed the pain Cause he wanted to gain All the things he wound up gaining And Dostoevsky said this about those With hearts that love and with minds that know The bigger you are and the more that you care The greater the pain you'll have to bear of us must learn in our own way to silently relate to everything we hate because sure enough for everyone the time will come for suffering to be done when it casts its spell I hope you suffer well Now Keith said this and I agree that all this pain is necessary like squeezing diamonds out of coal it turns a mind into a soul and Nietzsche's life was strange and dark but what he said was on the mark that we'll survive our suffering by learning to see what it means and each of us must learn in our own way to silently relate to everything we hate 
Cause sure enough For everyone The time will come For suffering to be done And when it casts a spell I hope you suffer well Suffer well 